0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So this morning, kids, hopefully you have a uh, bulletin, a kid's bulletin. And I know the adults get to them too. Um, So hopefully you grabbed them before they got to them. But I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 37. And we have got a lot to cover today. So I'm going to pull out my my timer. I'm going to be considerate of that. Genesis chapter 37 is where we're going to start. We're going to cover about 14 chapters today. We will not be going by them verse by verse, but we are in our series called Christ in the Old Testament. and all of Scripture, we're trying to show that all of Scripture is important. That there is not a verse that is not there that has meaning for us. And that every story of the Bible, whether it was from Adam or or whether we're reading in the the New Testament by Paul, that all of the stories find their meaning in Jesus Christ. And so God's plan of saving his creation is woven all throughout the pages of the Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And so today marks our halfway point through our series of Christ in the Old Testament, of looking at people that have been foreshadows, pictures, of Jesus to come. And we call those types of Christ. So kids, how far? We've done four. Can you name all four of them? Who did we talk about first? We talked about Adam. All right. Then who did we talk about? Noah. Melchizedek. Yes. And so today, we're going to look at, we've seen Noah, we've seen Abraham, we've seen Adam, and we've seen old Mel. Mel. And last week, we saw one of probably the most unfamiliar guys that we have in Melchizedek. I mean, there is no flannel graph picture of Melchizedek. I've looked. But we're going to talk about a guy today that was the star of the flannel I mean, the guy that we're going to look at today, he was the star because he was the most colorful. And so today, we are going to look at how do we see Jesus... Through the man named Joseph. So, kids, here's what I want you to do, and teenagers, you can do this too. I'm going to try to pull out four ways, and there are many. Joseph is a classic type of Christ, but I'm going to pull out four ways, see if you can find them, see if you can jot those down about how you see Jesus through the life of Joseph. So, here's how we're going to tackle this today. We're going to quickly just walk through the story beginning in chapter 37 of Joseph. I'm going to quickly kind of retail. I'll stop along the way, pull out some observations, point a couple of things about how we see Christ, but then we're going to focus mainly on the very last pages of the book of Genesis that Moses gives us in Genesis 50. And we will see from there uh, what I believe is one of the most important truths that we need to believe. In fact, if there is a truth if somebody said, Mark, you get to only teach about one truth for the rest of your life, this would be the truth that I would hope that we could know, we could have our faith built in, and we're going to look at this truth today. And, but it begins with the question of, have you ever questioned God's goodness in your life? You know, we think of things, and Marla and I were just kind of thinking through some ways that we see this. You know, parents... We can see things that kids can't. Teenagers, you've lived this probably. You've gotten to school, and you've realized that you didn't have your homework, and so you call home, and if you have a a nice parent, they might bring your homework to you. But we've been in that situation where we've said, No, we told you. We reminded you. That's your responsibility because we know there have got to be some hard things to walk through to learn something that shapes you so that, you know what, that's teaching responsibility. Or you've had those kids that have tried to run away. And uh, we had that not too long ago. And uh, it was our middle one. I won't tell you her name. And uh, something happened. She didn't like it. I'm out of here. So we opened the door and we said, you know what? All right, that's how you want it. We we're were we such bad parents. I mean, it was dark and it was raining. And uh, so she's in her socks and pajamas, and we're watching her walk down the, the driveway. And down there, and she's walking back and forth trying to figure out, what am I going to do? And, you know, letting her walk through some hard things because we knew she's not going very far. We knew that eventually she's going to come to her senses and go, okay, maybe things aren't so bad in the dungeon, you know, the torture dungeon up there on the hill. And uh, But we allow them to walk through some things because we know how it's going to shape who they are. And we're trying to teach things along the way. But, you know, we've probably all questioned God's goodness. We have said, man, God, I'm one of the good guys here. I mean, I'm on your team. Why do these things keep happening to me? So of all the truths, I want to talk about a truth that addresses that question today. And listen, it is a hard truth to believe. It is a hard truth to rest in. In fact, it's probably one of the hardest truths at times to believe in. But if we can, if we can believe this truth and we can trust in it, it can radically change our lives because we know it did with Joseph and his brothers. So Genesis chapter 37 begins verse 1 says, Jacob lived in a land of his father's sojourning, meaning traveling, moving about, and in the land of Canaan. Remember, that was the promised land that God gave to Abraham. Uh, verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, so first of all, Joseph is mentioned first, and he was pasturing a flock with his brothers. And he was a boy by the sons of Blanah and Zephah and his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So Joseph was the tattletale in the story. So he goes off, and even though he is mentioned as the only one right here, Joseph at this time is actually the youngest brother. And he sees, and his brother says he's 17 years old, and he is a shepherd. And Joseph brings a bad report back to his father about his brothers. And you know this went well with his brothers. Look at verse 3. Now Israel, also Jacob, remember his name was changed, loved Joseph more than any of the other son, of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe with many colors or an adorned robe. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So of all the brothers, Joseph says it was his father's favorite. Joseph probably was the one that cared for his aging father the most. He was probably around and with him the most. And he had a special relationship with his father. So it says that his father made him a beautiful coat but it says this does something to his brothers and causes a jealousy to well up in them the jealous of their brother's relationship they're jealous of the things that his father gives him to the point it says in verse four they could not speak peacefully to him So, meaning your mother's always told you if you don't have anything nice to say Don't say anything else. His brother said, there's nothing we can say peacefully about him. So they choose not to say anything. There's nothing that good that they could say about their brother Joseph. So here we have a young shepherd who is rejected by his brothers. So the first one, who else do we know is described as a shepherd that was rejected by those closest to him, including his half-brother James. And that's Jesus. We see Jesus, also called a shepherd, rejected by those, even his half-brother. Uh, um, by his half-brother uh, and Jesus is the one that we see in the life of Joseph. So Joseph goes on. The story goes like this. If you were to keep turning, Joseph has two dreams. Has the first dream of these sheaves of wheat. And Joseph stands up, and all the others bow down to his. And it's showing that Joseph's work, so when you would go out, you're gathering the wheat, you'll bundle it together, and it would represent your day's work. And Joseph's work stood up, and all the others bowed down to him. So then it goes on to say he had another dream, as a dream of a sun and a moon and stars, and they also bowed down to him. And it tells us, this was Joseph's second dream, The moon and the sun, his mother, his father, the stars, his brother, they once again bow down to Joseph. Now, this enrages his brothers. And his father even rebukes him. But it's really interesting. Look at verse 11. There's an interesting phrase that his father says in verse 37, 11. It says that his father kept this saying in mind. So he rebukes him, but his father keeps this saying in mind in mind. What does that mean? It means this: that I believe his father believed the dreams, but he could not fathom how this was going to happen. And so he, he continues to think about it. He keeps it on his mind. And it's interesting that we see this exact same phrase in Luke 2 verse 19 with Mary, the mother of Jesus. The angel tells her, you're going to have a child. It's going to be born miraculously." It's going to be the Savior of the world. And it says that Mary kept this saying in her mind. Meaning, I believe it, but I have no idea how this is going to take place. So this phrase means you hear it and you're pondering, and you're going to wait to see how it's actually going to happen. It is to have faith and then allow your experiences to show you the reality of God's claim. I mean, God, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I'm going to have faith that what you say is true, and then I want to believe, be able to see how you're going to use it, and you're going to work it out, but I have faith in what you have said. So then Joseph experiences something horrible. Well, I'd call this the ultimate betrayal. So his father says, Joseph, go find your brothers. I think they're somewhere around Shechem. Go see how they're doing. He goes off, comes to Shechem, they're not there, meet somebody, and he says, oh, they've gone further north. So his brothers are there, they see him coming, and they, they make a plan. So let's pick up at 37, verse 18. It says, then they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. This is how much they despise their brother. So they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will uh, say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dream. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe that had many colors that he had wore, and they took him and they threw him into a into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming out of Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh, and on their way came, uh, came to carry it down to Egypt. So they have this plan. Here comes Joseph. Man, let's just out here. Nobody's watching. We're up, far, up high north. No one is around. Let's just take care of him right now. But Reuben, the oldest, steps in. Now, why would Reuben do this? Well, one, I believe Reuben has lost favor with his father. He says, no, let's not kill him because uh, let's just throw him into this pit. Then I believe Reuben was going to come back, take him out, take him to his father, trying to gain back his father's acceptance uh, and to be in good standing with him. Because Joseph, we could read on, that he is actually given the birthright, that double portion that Reuben was rightfully his, but it was given to Joseph. But they decide to throw him into a well. And it says, did you notice what it said when they threw him down in the well, what they did? They sit down to eat. So these guys, I mean, they have no remorse. So they throw him in a pit. I'm sure Joseph was yelling for his life. And they sit down to share a meal together. They have absolutely no remorse over what they've done. So this group of Gentile merchants begins coming. And they sold him. For 20 pieces of silver, the going rate of a slave. And it says that they stripped him of his cloak. And that cloak, that was his badge of honor. That was the thing that that showed his father's love and his acceptance and his prize among his brothers. And his brothers stripped him of his honor. And they sold him for the price of a slave. You know, we could flip through several Pages and several books, we would come to another son that was loved. We'd read of a another son that had his honor stripped from him. We could read about another son that was sold for the price of a slave. And so, in Joseph, we see that other son that was stripped of his honor and sold for the price of a slave in Jesus. The story of Joseph goes on. So he's a place of honor. He loses that he's stripped of it, he's thrown into a pit and he's sold into slavery. But in chapter 39, you know what we see? We see Joseph is purchased by Potiphar, the guard of Pharaoh. So turn to chapter 39 just to keep me on track, make sure I'm not lying to you. And it says everything that Joseph did was blessed by God. It says that Joseph became a successful man to the point that Joseph was put in charge of all all that Potiphar had so this Hebrew shepherd is given now this place of honor in Potiphar's household that he's put in charge of everything that he has so a Hebrew shepherd has now earned the place of honor and power but Joseph an attractive man keeps coming into contact with Potiphar's wife and she tries to take advantage of him but he refuses to have any kind of relationship with Potiphar's wife. In fact, in 39 verse 9, you can turn there, it says that he refused to be with her, that Joseph refused to be with someone that was not his wife, and he saw it as a sin against God. But this is before the law was ever even given. But it was already in place in their hearts that Joseph knew he had to honor Potiphar. He had to honor God. And so he chose not to go that way. But she was relentless. And one day, they're alone. And she corners him. And he, uh, as he pulls away, she grabs a hold of his garment. And it's left there. And he, and he runs away. So Potiphar's wife creates this, this lie and tells her husband that Joseph tried to take advantage of her. story goes on. That Joseph is then thrown into prison. So here he is, a place of honor in his father's house. He's thrown into a pit, stripped of his honor, sold as a slave, rises again to honor in Potiphar's house, and now he is thrown once again in prison. You know what happens? Joseph rose again to a great place of privilege and honor and power. Because he is put in charge of everyone in the prison. Chapter 40. It says, while in prison for a crime he did not commit, he once again finds favor with the guard. And he is put in charge of all the other prisoners where he meets the cupbearer and the baker of not Potiphar, but Pharaoh. And Joseph interprets a dream that they have. Remember, it goes really well for uh, for the cupbearer. No, for the... Yeah, the cupbearer, but not well for the baker. He says, it's not going to end well for you. But for the cupbearer, man, you're about to be restored in three days to the honor that you had. And so Joseph says, I'm going to interpret this for you, but I need you to do me one favor. When you go, just remember me before Pharaoh. But I want to show you something interesting I've never seen before. Look at chapter 40, verse 15. Several things have happened to Joseph. He's thrown uh in a pit by his brothers. He is then lied to in by Potiphar's wife, and he loses things in both instances. But look at verse 15. You see what it, he says happened to him? He says he was kidnapped. He says nothing. About what has happened. In fact, he just says that he has done nothing to earn the spot that he has in prison. Isn't interesting that he never blames his brothers or Potiphar's wife? In fact, he says, "I was kidnapped." He he doesn't blame either one of them. And in the third one it says that there was another man falsely accused. In fact, many times, but even on hanging on a wooden cross. He doesn't blame the ones that put him there. In fact, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so once again in Joseph, we see a man not blaming other people for what is happening. We see it in the life of Jesus that many times he was falsely accused. And even on the cross, he does not blame them. In fact, he forgives them. But the old cupbearer, the cupbearer goes in, and he never mentions Joseph for two years. Joseph sits in this prison until Pharaoh has two disturbing dreams. He's talking about these dreams and he can't be, uh, he just can't get any rest from it. And uh, the cupbearer remembers now Joseph. And he says, Pharaoh, you're not going to believe this, but man, there was this Hebrew guy in prison and man, he interpreted a dream for us. And listen, I'm here. He, he told me about the dream coming true and, and it did. And so he's one that can interpret this dream for you. So Joseph has been betrayed, placed in honor, falsely accused, and now is in prison. Chapter 41, he comes and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And here's the two dreams. Pharaoh has a dream of seven fat cows and seven skinny cows, and the small cows eat the big cows. And then he's got seven plump ears of grain that are eaten by seven thin ears of grain. And this is disturbing to Pharaoh. So Joseph tells Pharaoh what these two dreams mean. He says, in fact, there's two dreams. It's actually the same thing, but they're important because it's coming, and it's coming quickly. And so Joseph tells them, you're about to have seven great years of harvest where it'll be so abundant, and then you're going to be followed by seven years of extreme famine where nothing is going to grow. So Joseph, once again, rises to great power and honor. Pharaoh puts this Hebrew shepherd in charge of all uh, that he has in his household. And all the people must do is exactly like Joseph says. In fact, Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world at this time. And now a Hebrew shepherd is second in command. So Joseph comes up with this plan. He says, Pharaoh, this is what you should do. Pharaoh hears a plan. He likes it. And he says, in fact, uh, Joseph, you're my man. And Joseph, once again, does an outstanding job, and and God's blessing is upon them. In fact, it says in the, you could read through chapter 41, that the harvest was so plenty, and his management was so good, that they had built so many barns, they stopped counting. But then, the famine hits. And this is where things get really interesting. Chapters 42 to 49 give us this back and forth thing says that famine spread all throughout the land. And that Jacob, back home, tells his brothers, Hey, I hear there's grain down in Egypt, and I want you to go and get some for us. Go and purchase to bring some back so that we don't starve to death here in Canaan. So they journey to Egypt, and Joseph recognizes them. Joseph looks around, and he knows that these are his brothers. And as they begin talking, he takes them. Man, go and read. He takes them through this thing. And he says, you're just here trying to take over our kingdom. And they're like, no, no, no. We're just, we're just simple shepherds, and we're starving, and we, we're here. We want to buy some grain. And through their stories, he hears that he has a younger brother, Benjamin. So he strikes a deal with them. He says, I'm going to give you grain only if you bring your younger brother back to me. I want to know that you're not these spies. And he knows that, but they don't. And he says, I want you to bring, if it's true, you bring this younger brother back to me. So Simeon stays as kind of collateral. So they go back, they bring the father, the father comes and he says, where's your brother? And they said, you're not going to believe it, but we met this, this guy, he's in charge and he gave us his grain, but he will not, he wouldn't give us unless we promised to bring Benjamin back. And the father says, absolutely not, I've already lost one son in Joseph, I'm not about to lose. Now I've lost Simeon, I'm not about to lose a third. Well, the story goes on that they stay and they eat the grain, but they soon ran out. So he says, sons, you're going to have to go back to Egypt. And they, uh, Reuben comes to him and says, but father, he will not let us come back. He's going to think we're spies and they'll kill us all if we don't bring Benjamin back with us. So they send Benjamin. Come into the house of Pharaoh. And Joseph does something interesting. Joseph sits them down and invites them to a meal. And Joseph puts them in birth order. Brothers never even recognize it. And I love the scene it says where Joseph in, in Genesis 45, Joseph walks into the room and he can't contain himself any longer. He sends everybody from the room. And that is where he reveals who he is to his brothers. And he says, I am the one that you sold. I mean, can you imagine the thoughts that would be going through the minds of those brothers at that moment? That here, they're looking at the second uh, person in command of all of Egypt. And he has just revealed that we're the ones that sold him into slavery. I imagine they were fearing for their lives. But in verse, chapter 45, look at verse 5. This is remarkable. And he says, and now, do not be distressed. Or angry with yourselves. Because you sold me here for God's, for you, you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. So Joseph not only forgives his brother, but he sees that all the hardship of being sold and Potiphar's wife being thrown into prison, he sees all of this as a part of God's plan. So here's the fourth thing, kids. Joseph submitted himself to the fact that whatever God's plan was, he was willing to be obedient to that plan. God, you're going to send me to Egypt? Okay. God, you're going to put me in prison? Okay. God, you're going to let me have power and and, uh, all this and take it from me? Not once, but twice? Okay. He had submitted himself to uh, God's plan. Amen. think back of Jesus in the garden. He cries out, Father, if there is any other way but your will be done. In fact, Joseph submitted himself to God's plan, Jesus in the garden, and all throughout his life, submitting his life to the plan of his father, being willing to be obedient even to death on the cross. So Joseph forgives, and he trusts in God's sovereign plan. And then he provides for his family. You know what he does? He sends them on about their journey, sends them back home. but He says, bring your father back. Come, and I'm going to put you in a place in Egypt. In fact, it says he gave them land, and he gave them the best land that there was. So they get to leave their place and to come to a place that they can have food and shelter, and their crops can grow, and their herds can flourish once again. But in chapter 49 and 50, we get to the end of Genesis. After all the famine ends, Jacob dies. Jacob had made Joseph make a promise. He said, Joseph, I don't want to be buried here. I want to be buried back in my homeland. And so Joseph has him embalmed. And that was such a thing of honor to have that done to you. And Joseph's father is really given the the death of almost Pharaoh. In fact, it says that they mourned for 70 years. Days. The average Egyptian, you only mourned for 40 days. They mourned uh, Jacob for 70 days, only two days less than what they mourned when Pharaoh died. He was given a great honor in his death. But here's where the most remarkable moment happens at the death of Jacob. Turn to chapter 50. I want us to look at verses 15 to 18. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, you know what? It may be that Joseph will hate us now and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father, he gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And it says that Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and they fell down before him. And he said, Behold, we are your servants. So even after all that Joseph had done for his brothers, they were fearful. In fact, they make up a lie about their dead father. But what is driving their fear is not their experience with Joseph. Because that has been nothing but blessing and grace. But they are driven to this. Nothing because of the love that Joseph has shown them. They're driven there because of their own guilt. They still can't let go of what they have done. And is driving them to be fearful in front of Joseph. But look at Joseph's response in 50 verses 19 to 21. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones, your children. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So I want to put out, point out some really important things about this. First of all, notice how Joseph begins and he ends with the phrase, do not fear. He begins and he ends with, he says, brothers, do not fear. He gives them an explanation. He says, do not fear. But he says, for I am in the place of God. Every time we see this in Scripture, what it is saying, it is saying that God is in control, not me. Meaning, I am where I am, not because of you, but of God. I am in the place of of God that God has put me here, and then he says the classic phrase, "What you meant for evil, God meant for good." I've often thought, I wonder how I would have responded if I had been Joseph. Man, would I have been as forgiving? Would I have been able to forgive, and then even provide for people the way Joseph? I mean, do I trust God in my circumstances the way this Joseph did? And I'd have to say probably not. Do you trust God's plan for your life? I mean, all I have to do is to ask myself, how upset do I get when things don't go the way I thought and I planned? So this is the mysterious thing about the heart of Joseph in this story. That through... The sins of wicked men. If it had not been for the sins, God does good works through their sins. By their evil acts, God does something years later that is good. Meaning that everything that happened to Joseph was the handiwork of God. And although we couldn't see it, God was holding all the strings. And that God was pulling them in effect for His good purposes. That God even used the evil acts to save their own lives. And I'm telling you, that is a level of grace that's hard to imagine. That you and I are not only saved because of our sins, and we talk about that a lot, but we are saved through our sins. That God uses our sins to save us. I want to draw our thoughts forward. And I want to share with you that one truth that I believe that will radically change our lives. You've all read the verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. It's the verse that you often hear at high school graduations. You flip through the annual and there's baby pictures. And Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, it's for the plans I have for you. And, and that is one of blessing that is used. And, and you see that everywhere. But do you know in context what is happening? In context, it was right before Israel was about to be sent into captivity in evil Babylon. When it appeared that life was out of control, that darkness was just about to engulf God's people, when this wicked culture was about to kind of get in the driver's seat of their lives, that is when God says, you will not understand. But I am in control and I have plans for what is about to happen. For this, we can understand and we can know that God can have no evil thoughts Toward his own. God has never had an evil thought towards one of his children, and he never will. Now, listen, I know I've been in those times, and it feels like that you are on God's enemy list, but God cannot do but good to his children. He has never had an evil thought towards one of his children, and he never will. So, what is the truth that if we believe will radically change our lives? Let me read. These verses, and found in Romans 8. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And isn't that something that we always talk about? Man, all things work to good of those called according to His purposes. And then it says, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So meaning God has got a plan. And that plan is that you will be conformed into the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. What does that sound like? In verse 30, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those He uh, called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Meaning God has got a plan. Then in the end, you'll be glorified and you'll be glorified because you have been conformed to the image of His Son. Then He says, in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? What are we going to say about God's plan? This is what we say. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, now will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So here's the other book, and here's the problem. God will use everything in your life and everything in my life for his ultimate purpose and glory. And sometimes it will not be what we have in mind. And God has never had an evil thought towards one of his own children, and he never will. And it doesn't mean that we get shielded uh, from all the hardships and misery that this world might throw at us. What it does mean is that God's plans are never for evil in the life of a believer. Even the apparent evil that we might suffer, suffer is for our good. This means that as believers, whatever is happening around us, we can trust that God is using all of them for a future and a hope for us. So here's the truth. Is that everything that happens to those who love God, if you are one of His children, whether you consider it good or not, It works together to make us into who He desires, His beloved children. God can't do but good to you. So if you've never fully believed this this morning, I invite you to believe it. If you haven't, those are truths that you know. And listen, we know these are hard truths, and it's really hard when life is not going well. It's really hard when we get that bad news. So here's what I want us to do the next time we're faced with this next time we're faced with the decision of thinking how does god love and does god really care is god really for me we need to say to ourselves not even his son man when those storm clouds come rolling in over our lives remind ourselves not even his son that he was not even willing to withhold or spare his son to bring us to the place that we need to be and that's What Joseph believed. That's what Jesus believed. Joseph knew that everything he suffered through was meant for good. That God cannot do but good to him. So do you believe that? And that is our invitation today is that we would believe. We would believe that God is for us and everything in our lives, even though it may not feel good, it is there that we can now remind ourselves not even his son. Let's pray. Father, this morning, what a wonderful time of worship. What a wonderful time of being together as your church to hear exciting plans that are happening and and things going on even today. But Father, sometimes life is hard and sometimes it is hard to believe the truth that you are always for us because we ask ourselves, how is this good? But Father, we want to be people that will be reminded of the promise that there is nothing that you would not go through to bring us to the point of being made in your image. There's nothing that you would do that would uh, hinder us from being made into the likeness of your Son. And you even went to the point of sending your Son to die on the cross that you did not spare his life to make that possible. And if you would not spare his own life, that gives us assurance that we can rest in, that you can only do but good to us because all wrath was poured out on your Son. So it is in His name that we can trust, that we can believe, and we can rest upon And through the power of your Spirit, we can ask all of these things. Amen.